0: of darkness What kind of love
1: Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Categorically Oscars. I'm
0: Chris. I'm Callum.
1: And this week we are back in the 21st century and looking at a very interesting category that we've um, seen before but never in color. Um, We are looking at Best Cinematography of 2004. uh, And this was... Um, this was your choice, so um, why did you decide to go with this year and this category?
0: Um, well, it's it's a passion-filled set of films, shall we say? Um, Pun that, intended. That we've got to talk about. <laughs> I mean, there's like love, there's blood, there's death, um, religion, sex—it's all there. Um, but I was going to choose the cinematography lineup from two thousand six because. Uh, None of them were Best Picture nominees, uh, which is quite rare. Mm -hmm. But then I looked at the films, you know, themselves and the two magic related nominees. I couldn't really summon up the energy to watch those again because I quite disliked (laughs) them the first time. Um, (laughs) So this was the next best thing, really. And um, like four of these five films were not among the most liked of the year, like even though they got, you know, most of them got a couple of nominations here and there. They weren't necessarily the big acclaimed films, and one in particular, I f- feel, is very undervalued. So mm-hmm. those were kind of my reasons for wanting to talk about this particular lineup. But I, th- I definitely think there's some meaty stuff to dig into among these nominees,
1: for sure. And it's uh, as we I think we mentioned last time, this is quite a splashy lineup in terms of cinematography. Um, We've got House of Flying Daggers, which was China's uh, submission also for Best International Feature Film. It was not selected as a nominee. The Passion of the Christ, The Phantom of the Opera, A Very Long Engagement, and the winner, Scorsese's The Aviator, the sole Best Picture nominee in the lineup. So we start with House of Flying Daggers, which um, I had never seen before this, and I'm glad to have had a chance to see it. How, what did you make of this movie?
0: Well, usually we kind of talk about the film, and then we talk about um, the category. Um, but I mean, it, it's hard not to begin with the fact that this film just looks incredible mm-hmm. um, on every level. Um Especially a color palette level, but I mean, um, even the production design and the costumes are just wonderful in this, and it's just such a vivid, vibrant film to watch, and it's just such full of artistic expression as well. You know, um, you you watch some films, including some martial arts films, and the fight scenes. You know, I've been thinking like. I just wish this would end, um, and get back to the story because, you know, they, sometimes it can be turgid and it, it lacks character, but with this one, I kind of just wanted the fight scenes to come back. They were that good. Um, and it, it really was a case of the action sequences being choreographed as well. Um, almost like a dance number, really, it, you know, the choreography was just really fluid and engaging, um. So yeah, on, on on the technical level, I, I just think this was magnificent.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's one of those movies where the, the fight scenes and the action scenes are not just perfectly integrated into the story, they are the story, and they are what drives the story forward. And there's so much character and story development in those scenes that they're just incredible. Um, and yeah, I... I was not expecting a 20-minute fight scene at the end, which spanned, you know, seasons in just a short (laughs) amount of time to finish the film. That was just an incredible piece of uh, technical filmmaking. And despite, of course, the heavy amount of special effects, which, with, of course, you know, the titular flying daggers and everything else, it all seemed very real in the context of the story of this kind of martial arts fantasy epic um and yeah it was just a magnificent film i felt
0: yeah i mean it's got elements of it that like crouching tiger um which is sort of you think oh come on <laughs> why is she still alive um you know yeah. the, the fantasy elements um you know, would be picked apart. But I mean, this is not the kind of film that's going to be um, beholden to logic or anything. Um, but to think like the, it's, it's like barely, I think it's about 12 minutes when they have the Echo game, which is just to begin, like I remember this because everyone was going on about the Echo game. And I remember thinking from the first time I watched it, that it, it was in the middle of the film. Um, mm-hmm. But no, 10 minutes in, We're going to have this amazing sequence, um, where she has to flail her, um, outfit against the, um, various drums. Um, I just think it's great, like, as a a sort of an introduction to the character, May's character and the strengths of her character and her abilities, um, it works very well, it works very well dramatically, um. And also you've got, like, a lot of unspoken respect that you can see um, from Leo watching her and the sort of relationship developing between those two um, through mm-hmm. the sequence. Um, and I was not surprised to learn that she does have a history um, with <laughs> ballet because, it—it it, it, like, really, she's incredibly graceful. I don't know if this is all her, and I don't know if there were... Uh, stunt doubles or anything like that involved with this so effects have been added. um, But, you know, I definitely think that she, the way that she moves in some of these scenes is, you know, really great and you could tell that she's been a dancer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And yeah, that Echo game was, yeah, kind of came out of nowhere to have such a big important scenes like you said so early in the film although i i did at one point kind of roll my eyes when he just kind of sprayed the whatever that he was throwing at the drums what were those like some kind of dried nuts yeah (laughs) well yeah he but then he just kind of threw them everywhere and they bounced all over the place and then she just hits there's no first of all there's no way she hit as many drums as were struck by the um things and second even if she did there would be no way for anybody even in this fantasy world to know yeah so i mean it's a cool sequence but it's still I was just like oh come on you know like what is this proving that she can also hit drums very fast i whatever i i mean i didn't think about it too much because then of course it went on to bigger and better things but <laughs>
0: I was thinking, like, maybe she's just hitting um, the drums in order of which drum was struck by anything first and just disregarding the rest of the stones that hit that drum. Um, yeah, <laughs> but maybe. I, I, yeah, I, maybe. <laughs> I think that would be looking too much into it. I think she was just trying to show off at that point.
1: Right, yeah.
0: <laughs> the, film, it, the plot's a bit silly. Um, it, it's kind yeah. I, I mean I was still I was still on board when the reveal happened that Jin was actually working for the governing power um you know kind of in the first third um but then the captain kind of tells him oh the general sent some soldiers after you and they you know they don't know you're actually on our side um so if you don't kill them they'll kill you and that's when Jin like turns away from the army but I did think well Would a military leader really send his own soldiers out on a suicide mission? It just seemed quite underthought to me. Um, And some elements Mm -hmm. of the plot just didn't quite work.
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I, I was fine with that. I think that's kind of a trope in plenty of war films that the superiors are so uncaring that they will send their men into No Man's Land, into wherever. I mean, even in realistic films like Paths of Glory, we see that. Uh, so, yeah, the the generals who disregard the lives of their men is a, I think it's a well-worn um, plot device. And mm-hmm. so it, it didn't take me out too much. Um, and I think it was kind of a good way to progress Jin's story and development, so... It was
0: fine. Did you did you completely follow who was on whose side at, throughout the film?
1: Um I think so. Um I didn't I didn't worry about it too too much because I was just loving the ride, but I think in general, yes, I was able to keep it and keep it on track for the most part and follow the various twists and betrayals. I was rather hoping that Leo might get some kind of comeuppance at the end mm. if if not from Jin, maybe from Nia for, you know, murdering May, but maybe he's yeah. got that coming, but we don't see it.
0: <laughs> well I like it kind of feels like he's gonna be the one that May goes with, like at the beginning, um although he is quite stern and quite um, ruthless, it does feel like Jin's also a bit fickle. Um, but um, mm-hmm. like, that's a love triangle. I mean, we've got another one coming up later, another love triangle later. Um, but May's, May seems very happy to be in this love triangle. Like she's, she seems perfectly prepared to go off with either at, at some points. Mm-hmm. Like she's got a love scene with both of them. Um But I had to laugh when uh, she eventually slept with Jin. And as soon as they've done it, she just says, go. (laughs) And and then he like somehow manages to work out that she's secretly thinking of Leo, even though she's just slept with him, Um, Mm -hmm. which to me is quite weak writing, because I think like after a man's, you know, had sex he's probably on top of the world and not really able to see the bigger picture um that this woman's (laughs) actually thinking of somebody else even though you've barely met him in the film um like i Mm -hmm. mean like you know i think it's probably closer to the bob and carol and ted and alice thing of um you know you're probably more likely to sleep with someone to shut them up than to get them to consider your feelings a bit more you know
1: yeah well, I think that that's another kind of stereotype, and maybe a less um, a less welcome one in these kind of films. That all the characters tend to be a little more philosophical at every point and after every action than they would be in real life. So yeah, um, he he kind of is in the same mind space as if he had just you know spent hours poring over um, a religious text or something like that. Then. He just had sex with this woman. He's got the same mindset in the both of those, so he's going to analyze it and he's going to understand her emotions on this deep level.
0: <laughs> and to bring it back to the cinematography, um, mm. I think the... I mean, obviously, the colors are, are what are what you think about um, with this, which has just got so much to offer on that level. Um, yeah, and this is Zhao Zhao Ding, who... Um, Has not been nominated since, Um, but Zhang Yimou's films quite popular with the Academy, considering he's a foreign director. He's been six of his films have got a nomination, which is quite a lot.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he he's definitely the uh, director with the most, or the Chinese director, I should say, with the most films selected for submission for the international feature film, I think he has something like seven or eight of his movies have been submitted even though, you know, as we pointed out in the trivia post, three of them have actually gotten a nomination. Yeah. Two for China, one for Hong Kong.
0: Okay. Um, so next we've got The Passion of the Christ, Caleb Deschanel. Um...
1: The yeah, the, <laughs> the greatest S&M film ever made, per John Waters.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Really, that's a great quote. <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, yeah. shall we get the religion out the way first? The whole because we have to be objective about this. We're here to be objective. Um. I don't know really anything about your religious beliefs or anything like that. Um. But I'm an atheist. But mm-hmm. for for me, like watching this, you know, beyond that, um, and like in the films we're going to talk about later um, and include in this one, they're all kind of led by characters who think they know better than everyone else. Um, And I feel like this is the ultimate story of somebody placing a lot of importance on their own role. Um,
1: Are you talking about Mel Gibson as the director (laughs) or Jesus as the character?
0: I'm talking about Jesus, um, but I think obviously Gibson as well. Um, but, like, <laughs> that's funny. Um, I think the very idea of Christianity is wonderful, even though I don't subscribe to it. Um, I think it's great that you, you know, people tell people to love each other and um, take care of each other and do as you would want to be done to you. You know, They're great messages. Um, I suppose that, the, like, what I'm trying to say is the self-importance of, of Jesus and the determination in this to be a martyr that's the way it comes across to me um it sort of lingers with me in the wrong way um Mm -hmm. but i think that the intention is very um from gibson seems very much to be on the propagandist sort of um technique for this
1: yeah no it it's unquestionably a propaganda film and a and a just an ordeal but the wrong kind i mean obviously the intention is to make the viewer identify or at least get a idea of what jesus went through and most of it is just bollocks um that's a that's a big problem and it's been a problem with the film it seems like the the critics of it are pretty much divided into this is torture porn trash or this is jesus christ and if you hate this film you're going to hell um i personally am also also atheist um but i saw this film when it came out in the theater and it was horrible um Mm. although the tension was broken at the very end when he spoiler alert rises from the dead. I just hear this woman in the theater just shout out, Hallelujah! And that was a bit of a tension breaker.
0: Was this in the U.S.? <laughs>
1: but um, <laughs> it, Yes, of course. Um, but, um, from a a bit of background on it, basically very little of this is actually in the Gospels, despite what Gibson and his press crew would like people to believe. Mm. Most of this story, most of the suffering and the torture and just every, all the horrible shit that Jesus goes through is taken from a medieval loony named like Anna Anna Emmerich or Catherine Emmerich or something, who was a deeply anti-Semitic yeah. quote-unquote saint. I think she was actually sanctified um, by the Catholic Church, but all of the anti-Semitic stuff in the film, all of the, you know, the evil Jews are responsible for Jesus's death mainly come from her. Right. Um, there's a little bit of that in the Gospels, but most of it is saying, no, the Romans hated Jesus because he was a troublemaker and they executed him a lot for propaganda value. That is kind of the... Well, as close to the true story, I think, as we can get. Um, But Gibson really... And he said in interviews that this Emmerich lady was a huge source for Mm. him. And the ridiculous attention paid to the horrific violence that in all likelihood never happened is just disgusting and... uh, uh, just disgusting and untruthful and misleading and that's not even getting into the horrible anti-semitism of the film which is pretty bad yeah it... so it's it's hard for me to be objective about this movie because it's so hate-filled
0: yeah it does um it's very obvious with the anti- anti-semitism and it it it, you know, reverts to old stereotypes, almost Nazi stereotypes, in a way of you know, Jewish people being underhand. Um, I, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I think like, is it passion plays used to call them? Where they used to kind of put on passion plays, mm-hmm. and um, it was basically this, where it was sort of like, look at what terrible things were done to Jesus, and, and um, yeah, and nobody understood and. Like Pontius Pilate, actually, the actor playing Pontius Pilate, I thought was quite good. Um, but Pontius Pilate,
1: actually, yeah, he was good.
0: Yeah, but it's almost like Pontius Pilate is not not that bad of a guy in this. Um, he's like, um, yeah, of course, <laughs> he doesn't want to kill Jesus. It's just the pesky Jews. Um, it's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you're right. I I think this is just. Um, this is all a propaganda machine for um, for Gibson's own beliefs, which seem mm. to be faithful um, to a certain version uh, of the story he wants to tell. Yeah. But dramatically, everyone knows what's going to happen. Um, it's a reconstruction of a moment that you know allegedly happened. Um, but I mean, to mm. me, that calls into question what the movie could possibly offer that's new, because. You know the is the purpose of making this movie just trying to ram home your message in the most flagrant of ways you know with the violence and Gibson very bloodthirsty and brave heart apocalypto um kind of seems to like that and really doesn't shy away from it here, but it I found it very distracting, mm-hmm. and I found the whole movie very, very repetitive,
1: yeah, I mean that. It is just extremely repetitive. I mean, I counted four slow motion fall shots mm. on the walk from Pontius Pilate to uh, Calvary, where you know where the crucifixion takes place. It's just he's carrying the cross, he falls over, he gets up, he carries it further, he falls over, he gets up, he... and yeah, the it's a very repetitive movie and a very just kind of shoddily made movie which seems weird considering its budget and everything but it's just it's all just kind of like you say there's no dramatic tension right we all know where this is going yeah so it's basically just lumbering from one set piece to the next getting most of it wrong and getting going to the next one um and just i mean I don't know why the Academy completely ignored Saw, which also came out this year, but then lavished three, <laughs> uh, nom- three nominations on this film for basically the same shit. Um,
0: yeah, I like to turn it to Caleb Deschanel. I think the film looks brilliant, um, from a from a cinematography perspective. Um, I just. And to give the film its due, I don't think it's a terrible movie. Um, To give the film its due, the beginning is really, really quite good. Like, I really enjoyed um, how moody and um, sinister the beginning was with um, Jesus in the wood um, talking to, I don't know, is it a demon? I don't know who it, I don't know what that was about. Um, But... That's got it's probably
1: this, meant to be Satan,
0: <laughs> but it's got this um, blue tinge to it um, in in those mm-hmm. scenes, um, and I just found that very good. And then, I, like a I, then it's kind of switches to this sandy sort of brown, almost like weathered um, kind of what you'd associate with the Bible, really. Um, and I think he said uh, Deschanel has said that he was taking inspiration from renaissance paintings um with with um you know they're very kind of warm darkly warm tones of color and you know quite graceful but not particularly bright or vivid um and i think he definitely achieves that with the look of the film i think it's very very impressive on that level um in terms of the colors i I, yeah i i kind of can't fault it uh from that standpoint really
1: I mean, I can't fault the look of the film, but I also don't see anything particularly outstanding about it. Um, Yeah, the, the opening is quite moody and sinister, and the blue tint is, you know, good for the scene, and it works overall. And then the following maybe 20 minutes or so also look quite nice. Yeah. But... The, the last more than half of the film is just completely unimaginative from a cinematography point of view where it's just close-ups of bloody Jesus. And um, so it, it kind of throws it away very quickly. It's almost like um, the, the cinematic or, or cinematography, I can never think of the word, to use to describe cinematography, but the cinematography equivalent of Hal Needham's line, um, when he was directing, I think, smoking the bandit, uh, screw the dialogue, let's wreck some cars. So it's almost like Gibson said, <laughs> screw the cinematography, let's shoot this torture. Um, mm. and then they just give up trying to do anything. They just point the camera at what's happening and we see it. So, the cinematography allows us to see what's happening. And in this film, I would not argue that's a good thing, but that's about all I can think of to say about the second half of the movie. Um, They, yeah, they kind of throw away the work that's done to create that mood and that atmosphere. I think.
0: I mean, I, I kind of think the film looks really good from start to finish, like in terms of um, how, how polished it looks and and the kind of mood it wants to give off um but i i think that for me it was sort of like an empty um an empty shell of a movie really that that kind of looked good on the inside but you you looked good on the outside rather but when you kind of delved into it and the story you know kind of the motivations of the story kind of became clear and it didn't really have anything to say so I think it kind of looked good mm-hmm. on on an aesthetic level. I just feel like it was kind of coming from a place that was quite um insidious really on Gibson's part and um and kind of going for shock tactics really.
1: Yeah. I think that's that sums it up pretty nicely, yeah.
0: Uh oh I wanted to mention also I think John Devney's score is very good. Um I think it's Quite sinister too.
1: Yeah. mm -hmm. Also nominated, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Um, Shall we get the musical out of the way?
1: (laughs) Yes, that sounds good.
0: (laughs) Chris has already mentioned to me, um, before we started recording that, you you kind of quite enjoyed this.
1: Well... (laughs) I I said that I enjoyed it in comparison to uh, Passion of the Christ, which um, I I watched the Phantom of the Opera one morning and then Passion of the Christ in the afternoon, which kind of retroactively made the Phantom of the Opera my favorite film of the day. So I did elevate it in my mind. Um, But while watching it, I was pretty bored. I have to say, um, I think that the songs are way too long. Like, unless you're, unless it's a fun song, you should really keep it short and sweet and move Three on. Minutes. But these yeah. songs just dragged and dragged, and just when I thought they were over, they'd just keep singing, and it just kept happening. And it's two and a half hours long, and the no musical should be that long. Two hours is the maximum for a musical, I'm sorry. Even good musicals can't go that long.
0: I don't think there's a musical under two hours, is there? <laughs> I'm struggling to think of one. Um
1: Okay, maybe maybe they just don't feel that long, and this one feels long.
0: I mean I think I would say like there's a lot of there's a there are lengthy periods where the film is kind of like meh. Um, but then something'll happen that will then kind of get me interested in it again. Um and this oh. is the this is the film I was talking about at the beginning that I think is the most undervalued because this got pretty bad reviews. Um, but I do think there's special moments in it. I think there's some wondrous moments in it, actually. Um, I think they sort of like um when you, you've got that kind of love song, All I Ask of You, and um, then the phantom comes out at the end, and he says, you know, you will curse the day you did not do all that the phantom asked of you, and then there's a huge, huge, massive, over-the-top shot, zoom-out shot, uh, aerial yeah. zoom-out, and it's just like, this is just, this is the most over-the-top way that you could do this, but it for me, it kind of fits with the, with the story because the story has such, you know, outrageous melodrama in it in the first place. Um, And I think if you give the story, you know, a second thought, then you kind of, it exposes the uh, problems with it. And particularly with Christine, which is just, she's really a, a bit of a wet fish of a character, really.
1: Yeah. She is, and she doesn't have a whole lot of agency. No. Uh, she basically just bounces around to whichever man is standing in front of her at the moment, um, which is an interesting approach, I guess. Um, in the, I, I was kind of consistently disappointed because in, I've read the novel, and in the novel she's a much more uh, interesting character mm. and does so much more to kind of mediate things and try to solve the situation rather than just kind of let herself be carried along by it. Um, Mm. I mean, I suppose it could have something to do that the Phantom looks like Gerard Butler instead of Lon Chaney, but (laughs) I'm sure that played a part in her, you know, decisions.
0: Well, it's funny because I read that um, the past, the point of no returns uh, sequence, which is my favorite I think it's by far the best part of the film. Um, that, mm. that was actually the first scene filmed between Emmy Rossum and Gerard Butler. So that was the first time she kind of met him um, on the set. And I think that was kind of a wise decision because it does feel that in that scene as if she's actually excited. Um, and as if she actually has agency. And she sort of does have agency in the final third, Christine. But before that, it's a very sort of perverse grooming story um, when you think about it. Um, And Emmy Rossum was was only 17 when this was filmed, um, which kind of makes it seem a little bit more perverse, really. But, like, the Phantom is definitely trying to mould her into the person he wants, even though he supposedly never even kissed somebody before.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the that whole thing is a little pretty creepy. Um but yeah, that the point of no return song is definitely a highlight. Um although I did think it was funny that he was he had been kind of singing his part for a mm. little bit and then it was only kind of when he walked out and she looked at him that she's like, "Holy shit, it's the Phantom." That you <laughs> You didn't recognize his voice? And then early... It, it happened. The same thing happened earlier in the film when she was at her father's crypt and the yeah. phantom starts singing and she's like, oh, it's my father. It's like, no, you know this guy's voice. You've sang with him before. It's the you music know, of the night. We all know who it is. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but I have to say, like... Ridiculous. Gerard, Gerard Butler gets a lot of flack for this performance. And the singing... And I kind of like his singing. I kind of like the gravelly. Like, it seems like he's um, got this never-ending throat and, um, like, if there's any fluid on his throat, it's going to come up during this. Like, it's act, like the whole thing, it comes right from the pit of the throat, the way that he says these lines. But I kind of think it gives it a kind of creepy dimension and it's not all about no perfect singing, but maybe that's just me. <laughs>
1: No, I I felt the same. Although, I mean, I guess I'm in the same boat. Remember when we talked about the boxing movies, um, when we talked about 56, and yeah. the characters were saying, God, you were barely putting any effort out there. And I was thinking, I thought he was doing really well. I guess <laughs> it's the same for me with singing. I mean, it sounded great to me, um, and I didn't know that he got... Uh, poor reviews for his singing i thought he's i thought he did fine but maybe it's just because i sing so poorly um anything impresses me and even you know even Minnie driver she was the bad singer but she she could hit notes i could never hit i could never hold notes the way she does so go Minnie, you know
0: well actually she's the only one that didn't sing uh her, she was dubbed by somebody else. <laughs> sorry, sorry to spoil the moment. <laughs> no, 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 the, then go whoever dubbed her. You know. Yeah, yeah. But she certainly went big in other ways, didn't she?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the biggest problem I have with this for me, and it's the same kind of problem I think uh, that Joel Schumacher ran into when he did a Batman movie, is that The Phantom of the Opera is a gothic story. And this did not look or feel gothic at all. Um, The music, even the dungeon, like the catacombs of the opera house didn't feel gothic. And that's like made for gothic. And he just, I think he missed the mark completely with the look of the film. And I guess that kind of brings us to the cinematography too, because even though it's very big and very splashy and there were moments where it, I was thinking, well, this looks great. Whenever it kind of tried to be epic, I kind of just felt it trying to be epic. And Mm. I didn't really feel that it was epic.
0: Yeah, it was much more like, this is kind of a theme for me with most of these movies, but I was much more impressed with the uh, production design than with the cinematography. Um, Mm -hmm. But part of me thinks that um, maybe... John Matheson got this nomination from the cinematographers because of the lighting aspect, because it it does feel as if there are a lot of scenes where most of the setting is in shadow um, and you only have sort of pockets of light in the foreground or the background. So I'm just wondering on a degree of difficulty level, maybe this might explain it, because for me personally, I don't feel like the cinematography is that great.
1: Yeah, I I would agree. Um, and yeah, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, its nomination for cinematography uh, to me. And it didn't, it wasn't really a big player in the awards circuit in terms of its cinematography either. I think this was its only cinematography nomination, so... Yeah, it yeah. was must have been kind of a weird, kind of a shock nomination. At least most of the other movies got attention for their cinematography. At least
0: I'm wondering if it may have been um, a Christmas release um, that was fresh in the mind of voters, um, which which might mm-hmm. explain it. Um, all right, shall we move on to a very long engagement, Bruno Delbonnel? Yes. Uh, Bruno Delbonnel won the American Society of Cinematographers Award uh, going into this. Um, thoughts? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think, yeah. Well-deserved win. Um, he also won the uh, César Award in in France for this film. Um, I think the cinematography is gorgeous in this film. Um, it generally is uh, with Jean-Pierre Jeunet's films. Um, and a lot of what we were talking, what you were talking about with the passion of the Christ, kind of making the period come alive. I think this film really, the cinematography does so much in kind of, um, evoking the time period. And it's just kind of fun. Like Junet's films are always just fun in their cinematography, um, and this film yeah, I think the cinematography was fantastic.
0: Yeah, it's it's very much got two two sort of palettes going for it. It's got the the yellowy tint, um, to the present. Um it feels very, very yellow, um and then kind of when it goes back to the wartime it's got a very drab. I kind of preferred the wartime. Whenever it was it was flashing back to um the wartime, I thought that that was when the cinematography was at its strongest. Um, mm-hmm. But there's some beautiful, beautiful looking scenes in this beautiful looking landscape. Um, and the lighthouse, there's a couple of shots where she's at the lighthouse, um, which is just, just framed beautifully. Um, so yeah, I, I, I was impressed with this um, on, on that level. Definitely. Um, the story, maybe not so much, but, um,
1: I was just going to say the story, kind of like House of Flying Daggers. Um, I was just kind of along for the ride for most of it and enjoying it so much mm. that maybe I was more forgiving to the story. But I actually kind of enjoyed it. I liked the. I, I haven't seen too many romantic mystery comedy films, uh, and so it was kind of a eye-opening genre mix for me which i quite enjoyed
0: i'm not sure i'd call it a comedy i have to say i, I mean the were i guess
1: i wouldn't i wouldn't call it a comedy but yeah there's there's always in gene's films there's always dark comic moments and even in the face of death and destruction and war he always manages to find the humor mm. um yeah and yeah i i would definitely describe this film as if not a dark comedy, then at least darkly comedic.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, I think, yeah. I think, uh, the 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 superstitious element to it as well sort of brought an element with that. And but um, I think like there are to me, I was more impressed with the di- direction than the cinematography in this. I think some of Genet's mm. camera work is wonderful. I my favourite sequence was the flashback to when Menech goes off to war and um, Mathilde says, you know, she does this quite a lot, but this is the, the, the main one for me, was when she said, oh, if I, if I reach the bend in the road um, and the car's still there, he, he's going to come back alive. And she, she calls for it. And this is my favourite bit of the film. It's just such an emotional moment you know, she really just tries to get to the, the road bend um, and, and she doesn't get there in time. Um, you think she has got there in time and then it turns out to be another car. And um, But you, mm-hmm. I thought it was a beautiful scene. I thought it was really emotional. But the, And then the next shot, the very next shot, it cuts to a cemetery with all the soldiers' graves and my the one at the front. I just thought that was an absolutely brilliant cut um i I think there are a lot of examples of that i just think journey's um direction of the film's very intelligent um i the editing however i have problems with i think the beginning doesn't build it up enough the end is a bit anticlimactic um it almost feels like this is there was a much longer cut of this um And even though it's one hundred thirty-five minutes, it does feel like it's been whittled down. And maybe it's the beginning and end that have seen the brunt of that. Did you feel that at all?
1: I I did. Yeah. the The ending felt very rushed, and I didn't. I feel like I didn't get the emotional catharsis that it had been building to. It just kind of yeah, like you say, it ended on an anticlimax, and then we're done. And yeah, for a two-hour and fifteen-minute-ish film, that seems a little unforgivable. And yeah, maybe there's a longer cut that they, that they chopped off. It's kind of similar. I mean, we we talked about the same thing uh, a couple episodes ago with, um, with all the king's men, mm. right? We felt that the the opening may have been butchered a bit in the editing process.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, but this was like. I mean, kind of. It does feel like a different time, and both of us kind of. Were Were you interested in the Oscars at this point? When this
1: in two thousand four, you mean? Um, Yeah. No, I think I was aware of them, um, Mm. but I, I had, I was watching them by this point for sure. But I had not seen. I may have seen Ray, this year, but I wasn't much. I had not seen any of the other ones. I still haven't seen Million Dollar Baby uh, to this day. But um, yeah, I definitely wasn't um, as into them as I am now. But I was, I was starting down that road.
0: Well, we we've always got Best Actress. We could still do that uh, for this year. It's true. Um, yeah. I th- yeah. I. I mean, I just it just it's interesting because I was following it at this point, um, being I guess eighteen. 1718 um and but i mean audrey tattoo and jean-pierre jeunet the absolute rage at this point after amelie amelie was such a hit everybody loved it um Mm -hmm. and now you kind of think where have they gone you know it does it's only 15 years ago or so but it feels like a lot for them they kind of seem to have just disappeared
1: yeah it is uh it is interesting. I don't know,
0: but I think it, I think it speaks to how um popular they were that this managed to get craft nominations. I think obviously it deserved this one. Um but you know, I think it didn't it get something else.
1: Uh, I got art direction. Art direction. Or it got as nominated well. for art direction, yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think I think it I think that speaks to how respected they were at at, at this point. Um it would be nice to see them do something again. It really would.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they they are a good team, and it's a shame that they only made a couple of movies together. Yeah. Uh any more? Um nope. I think uh I think we can move on to the winner.
0: Uh the winner, Robert Richardson for the Aviator. Um and the Aviator undeniable Oscar Bait, I think we can say, um with yeah. with the prestige, um the old Hollywood, the, the biopic factor. Um but I kinda like that it's not a, a totally by the numbers biopic. It's um it's a bit freer in its structure than that. Uh, you don't always see the, the cogs of the script turning away and that you, you kinda tend to do with these kind of films like Ray that you've mentioned um Mm -hmm. and like i think a lot of biopics can tend to be more concerned about what happened to the people they're they're telling the story about than who those people were and what drove them to do what they did and all that stuff um but i feel like this one really digs into the character um but it's just so bloody long
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah no yeah definitely um yeah, like I said to you earlier, uh, Scorsese has definitely gotten long-winded in his uh, in his later career. I don't think any of his recent movies are under two hours, um, and some of them, like The Irishman, are closer to four. I think, right? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I did I did like that. This was kind of not just a biopic, but a themed biopic. Uh, it wasn't really about Howard Hughes's life, but his life as specifically related to aviation um yes. and how it affected him in you know his desire to get into films and we see I love the opening act focused on Hell's Angels Um and then of course he goes on to direct more films and we we hear about that but they're kind of like off to the side in the script I'm sure in his mind he mm. was just as fully committed to them but in the script like no nope, Scarface there's no planes in that so it's you know <laughs> off camera Um <laughs> but yeah, as a as an examination of the man and the character, I think it works extremely well. And I think DiCaprio, uh, when I saw this movie for the first time, it was one of the first times I thought, shit, this, this guy can act. This kid from Titanic can actually act.
0: It took me a while. It took me a while with this, um, not in terms of his career, it took me a while within this film um, because at the beginning... I I was thinking it's too soon. Um, he's too young to play him. I, You know, I was kind of envisaging somebody like Campbell Scott might have been good in this, somebody more inherently dislikable and more inherently masculine. Um, mm. But, I mean, that does come from the films that we've watched him in, like Gilbert Grape and Titanic and how much of a baby face he, he was. Um, it was a struggle for me to get past that the first time I watched it. And seeing this time, again, I think the first half, he does feel a bit too young. Um, but then the longer it goes, you know, the more he made me forget about that. Um, I think particularly as, when Howard's mental state unravels, he does a really good job. Um, and the oh. OCD elements and interesting because OCD, this was very early for somebody to be. You know for OCD to be a thing, um, you know, and, and um, germs, for instance, people to be, you know, afraid of germs. That was kind of very early for, you know, in the thirties, I mean, um, and it probably wasn't even a condition understood at that point or particularly widely publicized. Um, so I think it's interesting mm-hmm. that that element to his character, but, you know, I think Leo does a good job. The more unhinged he is, I think he does a better job. Um, but then at the hearing at the end, he kind of lost me again. I didn't really believe that, so I'm not fully on board with the performance. But definitely, think there's some strong stuff there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the the hearings at the end of the film kind of have this quality of the hero rising up, you know, and delivering his big put down of the man who's trying to keep him down. So it kind of gives itself over to that bravado and that kind of triumphant. Moment, But I think it's kind of what saves it for me from being that kind of stereotypical moment is the fact that immediately after his triumph, immediately after his plane flies and he's on top of the world, the film ends on such a downbeat note where he just crashes down again into his illness and he's stuck inside his head and he can't escape and we're done. So
0: mm,
1: yeah. to me, that's kind of a a... Kind of, I don't know, undercutting the stereotype, undercutting the trope a little bit by Scorsese to make us think we're witnessing his triumph, but then seeing that he will never be free from, you know, his demons and what's driving him and what's killing him. So, yeah, I retroactively it made it less uh, cliche for me.
0: Yeah. I think I would question whether we need hundred and seventy minutes um to to yeah. to realize that i i mean I wasn't like I wasn't keen on Blanche at the first time I watched it, and now watching it, I think she's quite good um because like, originally I thought it was an impersonation, but watching it again, I think there's some good character work in there um although she's obviously still trying to get the voice down and and all that stuff but I feel like she kind of tries to tap into what Hepburn was thinking about her own fame and um, her own insecurities. I don't know. There, there was there was some decent stuff in there this time, I thought, but I did feel like maybe their um, their romance was too too much at the forefront of the film, and I could I could have done with some of that being removed, to be honest.
1: Yeah. No, yeah, I, I that part kind of it drags a bit in the middle and I think the focus on their romance, that whole sequence could definitely have been trimmed quite a bit. and I don't think I'd have missed a lot. Um the scene with her family, for example, I didn't it had some cool had some fun lines in it, but it I don't think it advanced the plot or the characters in any way that couldn't have been done more concisely in other areas of the film Hmm. um and yeah i i agree that whole that whole part could have been trimmed quite a bit yeah and aside from the voice um like i i do think her voice kate blanchett doing Catherine hepburn's voice was a bit like she's doing hepburn but the rest of the performance kind of made up for it i felt um she was she was Hepburn in enough ways that it kind of made up for the fact that her voice, I don't think, was quite, not perfect, like it didn't have to be perfect, but mm. less of an impression of Hepburn and actually being Hepburn, I think.
0: Yeah, I don't think it helped that the 2004 supporting actress line it was quite strong. Um, and in every award show, it seemed as if they showed the golf clip, which is kind of the one that's, not very good because it's sort of the, the parody of bringing up baby. Um, yeah. And the, for me that didn't work at all. Um, but then like, for instance, when Howard says, you know, you're just an actress at the end when they finally break up, I think her reaction to that is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause she sort of, it's almost like the person who, who always knows what to say, doesn't know what to say. It's just kind of like, Thinking it over, I, I kind of really liked that reaction, um, but to bring it back to Robert Richardson, I I wasn't blown away, um, I wasn't blown away honestly. I think that it's I think it does have a, a good archival feel with the visuals. I think with the sort of blue green tint there are, there is an element of old Hollywood, um. A grandeur um, to the cinematography um, but I, I wasn't wowed
1: mm-hmm. yeah I, I have to admit I feel the same way um, it was definitely I think an achievement um, more an achievement than some of the other nominees in the category and certainly to achieve that look even if it was done digitally um, still had to take a lot of consideration to make sure that when you digitally altered whatever colors you were actually shooting, they showed up the way you wanted them to show up and you could kind of manipulate them in the way you wanted to. So I definitely think that he put a lot of work into the cinematography and I think that, again, the art direction, the production design is doing a lot of legwork.
0: Dante Ferretti. Brilliant.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Also, the winner
1: in that category. Um, yeah, I I agree with you. I wasn't I wasn't really blown away by this, and uh, but I do respect the effort that he put in and the achievement that he did.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we'll, we can talk about uh, why he won later on. We'll talk about that, but it does feel a shame um, to, to kind of. Consider that the rest of these nominees are not big hitters, um, but they couldn't give it to one of the other ones. It had to go to the, you know, one of the best picture front runners um, that also won four other Oscars. Um, mm-hmm. So it kind of is a shame that they couldn't throw something else a bone. But that that was kind of a, a big pattern of the time um, in the way that they handed out Oscars in the first place. Um, I, there was a negative, I wanted to say. I didn't like the lighting in the scene where Howard and Hepburn are either side of the door. Um, because I think that they were so. You know, I, I, is it some kind of. It was such strong lighting that you couldn't see their faces properly and you couldn't see the performances because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I felt like it took away from that and I felt like. Um, it would have given us an opportunity to see how those two felt about each other, you know, months later. And it was sort of like a, the memories coming back and, you know, I didn't get that because I couldn't see their their faces when they're acting. So that was kind of a, quite a downside to me, that particular scene.
1: Yeah. I, I had the same thought when I was watching it and there were some and it, it's weird because the rest of the film, I think, was uh, generally lit quite well. And
0: yeah, totally. Just
1: kind of a, a weird misstep in that scene. Reference to why it won, um, I think maybe just because we, what you talked about, about the aviator kind of being this huge um, success that year at the Oscars. I mean, it did get the most nominations and the most wins of the year, and it was definitely the one to beat in most of its categories. And also, I mean, Robert Richardson, he's just is well-liked by the industry. And he has long collaborations with a lot of big directors, like not just Scorsese, but also um, Oliver Stone and Tarantino and these guys he's worked with a lot of big Academy loved directors. So I think he just had the pedigree and the, likability of the Academy behind him and the others were maybe um, a little less known to the voters
0: yeah I I mean I feel bad because I like Robert Richardson as a as a DP but I I mean the Hugo win is, is particularly offensive to me as well because um, <laughs> that belonged to Lebeski. but yeah mm-hmm. um, but I can't complain about JFK. Um, JFK looks great, but uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I remember that be, this being like a, there were only three films, basically, um, which is Million Dollar Baby, The Aviator, and Sideways, which were an adapted screenplay. And they basically shared out most of the awards between them. Um, yeah. So, those were kind of comfortably ahead of the rest, and I don't think it was close, put it that way that the aviator won this because no I don't of, think so. of of the other four, which would you throw your weight behind, which would a following throw the weight behind you know
1: um i I would have uh my vote would have gone to house of flying daggers
0: mm. yes, my spoiler alert, but mine too <laughs> <laughs> um, spoiler alert for the rankings later. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess we, we tipped our hands a little bit. Please don't turn the podcast off. We're going to talk more about more things.
0: <laughs> okay, so we've got a couple of listener questions um, this week. Um, <laughs> and the first one's from Daddy Um And he asks, uh, in the first part of the movie, uh, The Aviator, how did Robert Richardson achieve this all technical look for the color green? Was this done with certain filters or was it all in the post-production?
1: From what I've been able to uncover, it seems like it was almost all post-production. I think they experimented a bit with doing it with filters or trying to shoot it on kind of old-timey film stock or trying to recreate it somehow, Mm. but eventually I think they settled on it was mainly done Digitally in post production.
0: Yeah, although the the film would be um, on film, with it being Scorsese yes. in two thousand four, mm-hmm. right? Yeah,
1: yeah, it was shot on film. Yeah, definitely.
0: I think maybe Daddy are giving us a bit too much credit here. Um, <laughs> we're not, we're not cinematographers by any means. Um, no. But if we ever speak to Robert Richards, we can ask him. There you go. Uh, and Ronaldo Sosa asks. Um, Ronaldo Sosa says, "The Passion of the Christ used to play on TV every Easter when he was a child, um, which makes me feel old." And he's, <laughs> yeah. he says he saw it every year with his grand grandparents. Um, uh, he says, "Did you, uh, like him, have nightmares about the scene where you see baby Lucifer at Jesus's crucifixion?" very creepy scene
1: yeah very creepy um well short answer no but um <laughs> we were too old <laughs> yeah i guess so you know i guess um yeah it does it just makes me feel old too so like oh yeah i watched this when i was a child oh great um but <laughs> on I thought, tv as
0: well <laughs>
1: on tv no less yeah so it must have been years later and he was still a child um, <laughs> i i thought that the i thought that the adult guy was lucifer so is he holding himself or is the baby the antichrist or something like that
0: oh, don't ask me i,
1: I mean i'm <laughs> i'm i'm looking at i'm looking at the gif that he helpfully included in the question um and to, I, I think babies are inherently pretty creepy anyway, so I think if I was a child when I saw this, I would have nightmares, but um, in in the event I saw it, uh, I won't say how old I was, but it was later. I was no longer a child.
0: I mean, I think a lot of Sunday school children have been saved nightmares from the fact that this is an 18, um, and rightfully so. Uh I think if I'd watched it as a kid, um, I would be freaked out. To be honest, uh, if it does. It really feels like this stuff is like shouldn't be in the film. Like at one point, uh, the older demon, uh, who I thought was the devil, um, mm-hmm. like a maggot crawls up the nose, and I was thinking, oh. It's really, yeah. this is really almost belongs in a different film like it, it was almost like fantasy when the film was going for realism for so much with the whole blood and nails etc
1: yeah I, get, I mean the question begs another question which was why were you watching this when you were a child this is not a movie for children <laughs> my god but different strokes
0: yeah it's really it's, Some people can um, overlook the uh, gore for the religion uh, educational I, value.
1: <laughs> I guess. I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I do remember that um, my father once told me that when The Exorcist was released, the Catholic Church condemned it, while the Greek Orthodox Church encouraged people to see it because they felt that it would educate people about the dangers of, you know, the devil. But I think still, even they did not recommend you would take your uh, children to see it. Just uh, you watch it and tell them about it. You know.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for those questions, guys. Um, Who was snubbed this year? Any thoughts?
1: Um, I think that for sure uh, collateral definitely was surprisingly snubbed in this category um i think that that easily could have found a place here and the fact that it didn't is honestly a little surprising i think it won some other big ticket awards didn't it did it win the
0: golden Um, globe
1: maybe or something
0: did it i know it got the asc nomination which is the big predictor um Along with Ray, yeah, um, also got the ASC nomination. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I I love Collateral. Oh um, no, it
1: won the BAFTA actually for cinematography.
0: Oh wow, okay, that's strange then. Mm. Why it didn't get the nomination? Mm. Um, but that's a that's a great film. Lots of nighttime cinematography in that one, but it looks wonderful. Um, yeah, so
1: and like most of Michael Mann's films, just incredibly moody and interesting cinematography
0: yeah
1: um other ones i guess um well interestingly i think the new york film critics selected a different uh shang yi mu film for their cinematography award which was hero yeah um which i guess came out a couple of years prior but i guess got its u.s release in 2004 so mm. um I mean, I guess they weren't going to nominate two films by the same director in the category, but still, interesting that that also was getting awards attention.
0: Yeah, that might have been a bit of overkill, although Hero does look great too. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I always think I always think the best picture winner is never very far away from this, regardless of how good the cinematography is. Um, so you would you might yeah. think that Tom Stern for Million Dollar Baby may have been. Um, on the outside looking in for this,
1: I would imagine so. Yeah.
0: Uh, wider observations on two thousand four. Um, what do you think about the fact only one of these are best is a best picture nominee? Because there's usually more than that, right?
1: I think usually, yeah, at least two or maybe three sometimes. But I, I can't really see any of the other four breaking into the best picture no category i mean not not least because three of them are foreign language films and that just wasn't done in 2004 mm. um i okay it happened occasionally we did have crouching tiger hidden dragon a few years before and it it happened occasionally but it just wasn't as prominent as it seems to be becoming now you know which you know rightly so and the phantom of the opera that's not going to get a best picture nomination either so um it's an interesting interesting lineup in that regard that only the aviator was among the heavy hitters of the year
0: yeah i mean when you look at the five you think of the five would the passion uh the passion of the christ be be the film that the huge box office hit um that could get in there but then think you know you consider how how many jewish people are there in the academy um <laughs> i don't think they could respond very well to that Um, So I I can't imagine any of these were anywhere near the lineup.
1: No, I don't think so. I don't think any of those four were even close to a Best Picture nomination.
0: What about Eternal Sunshine? Could that have gotten in here?
1: For cinematography? Yeah. Oh, mm, I think so, yeah. That was a pretty imaginatively shot film. Also kind of interesting that it didn't get a production design nod. Yeah. um, Because it had... It had a very a very cool look in that regard.
0: But it did win screenplay.
1: That's right. Yep. Um so it was yeah. It had, and it had the actress nomination as well, so it was it was in their minds.
0: Yeah. Okay, um we're gonna rank these? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, I think I went first
1: last time, so you want to go first this week?
0: Okay all right um, so at five I've got the Phantom of the Opera. Um, for me, believe it or not, I think the Phantom of the Opera is the best film of these five um but I <laughs> I can't really um, I can't really commend it on cinematography too much. Um, number four, I've got the aviator. I think it was underwhelming given the win. Uh, three, I've got a very long engagement, which I think is very, very good. Um, I just may be over-reliance on the yellow. Um, two, I've got The Passion of the Christ. And one, I have, by a long shot, House of Flying Daggers.
1: All right. Yeah. It's, um, well, I mean, we know we agree on the number one uh, of the year. I, have, I also have that at number one. But number five, I have The Passion of the Christ. Um, I... I get what you're saying about the cinematography. It just didn't do it for me in the way that the other films did. Like it didn't, it didn't seem noteworthy. It just seemed competent mm. to me. Yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe it's my own. I'm letting other parts of the film cloud my judgment. That's possible. Um, but that's, yeah, it just it is what it is. Um, number four, I have The Phantom of the Opera. Number three, I have the Aviator. Number two, a very long engagement, and number one, House of Flying Daggers, which um, I would say is probably my favorite among the five nominee of among these five films. Just as a film, I think I just enjoyed it the most out of all of them.
0: Certainly, I think yeah, for me, Phantom and House of Flying Daggers, I enjoyed um, the the most. I none of these films are great, <laughs> I would say. Like, but um, no. But that's why it's interesting, because these are not films that are celebrated um, much in other categories, really.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there was quite a bit of crossover with production design. Like three of these were also in that category. And um, of course, The Aviator also winning for costume design, film editing and Best Supporting Actress.
0: Okay, um, we have a website, it's Uh we're on Twitter at CategoricallyO. Next week, um, film critic at The Guardian, Mike McCahill is joining us to talk about the 80s and the best original song lineup of 1984.
1: Yes, quite a... Uh, we, we don't get into the 80s very much on this podcast, but now we're going to get a just full blast with these songs. Um, We've got uh, Against All Odds, Phil Collins from the film Against All Odds. We've got two from the movie Footloose, um, the title song, and then Let's Hear It for the Boy. We've got the Ghostbusters from Ghostbusters. And then finally, the winner, I Just Called to Say I Love You by Stevie Wonder for The Woman in Red.
0: Yeah, and I... We haven't. I haven't seen any of these. Um, I, I may have seen bits of Ghostbusters, but not the whole thing. Um, I Against All Odds looks quite steamy. I might need to lie down after that. I might need a a, a fan sure. on hand.
1: <laughs> well, with um, you know, with Phil Collins, you got to expect some sensuality. I think. <laughs> um, and I, I actually haven't seen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Said no, whatever. <one>
1: <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Sorry, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, I actually, I've, I haven't seen these movies either, save for Ghostbusters. And while I do love Ghostbusters, I'm also a big Huey Lewis and the News fan, so I probably will not be too laudatory about the Ghostbusters theme song. Um, preview for Yikes. those Yikes. at home keeping track.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think. Um... I think maybe this is where you know we have fairly highbrow film tastes. I feel like my music tastes are not are not at all like that. Um, <laughs> so I I think people might see a different side of us next week.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I'm I'm gonna have to get in touch with a friend of mine who kind of turned me on to '80s music um, when we knew each other in New York. Um, I was kind of snooty about 80s music and he said no let me make you some mixes and he he let he let me know the score so I'm looking forward to this one